And, uh, you know, with all this COVID stuff, as I was preparing for this week, uh, there was a few things that I was reflecting on because uh, God gave me a prophetic word during the week, which I'll be sharing with you and gave me a message for today. And uh, I fear that for many of us, COVID-19 has exposed a faith flaw, a flaw in our faith. And that's because we're used to relative tranquility and prosperity in our nation. And a serious challenge to our accustomed way of life has presented itself. And all of a sudden, I see people getting sucked into a vortex of various influences, theories, and end times prophetic words, in inverted commas. And uh, I say prophetic words in inverted commas because I've heard and read many of the scenarios that have been put forward in the last few months centering on the pandemic. And I want to share one with you that, um, that was kind of like, I'm not even going to read this stuff anymore. Because uh, the, the most far out one that I've read was that COVID-19 is a virus engineered and designed by Bill Gates as a solution to overpopulation in our planet with the strategy to reduce the world's population by 7 billion and make a more sustainable planet. This was a prophetic word that I saw given by somebody on Facebook. And what was most scary about that um, particular prophetic word is that it was released by somebody who has written multiple books on intercession. And uh, I think it's very disturbing that something um, like what's happening around the world now should throw so many people off track and off purpose. When Pastor Miles Witherford brought that prophetic message a couple of weeks ago, I knew that God wanted to get our attention. For many of us, our attention has been diverted by what we see and hear around us. I knew that God wanted to get our attention, that he wanted us to turn aside just like Moses did. And out of our turning aside, God is going to propel us into a new season. And I use the word season advisedly because uh, we have had a whole season of not being able to gather together in church and it has been an opportunity for us to examine where we are in our faith walk with the Lord and what we are being called into. And so this is the focal point of our 21 days of prayer and fasting in preparation for the reopening of our church to public meetings and to uh, wider ministry in our community I believe that God wants to come and sharpen our focus. As we come aside in these 21 days, God is asking us to re-examine our mission and our purpose. And this applies to each one of us individually. It also applies to us as a church or a ministry. And uh, when I bring a prophetic word and preach out of a prophetic word or a prophetic vision... I understand that there's a responsibility attached to prophecy. And so when I bring a prophetic word, I'm particularly encouraged 
when that prophetic word is confirmed. Uh, Last week I brought a prophetic vision when I preached and I shared a vision that I had where a flaming torch was being held aloft next to a huge reservoir of oil and as the vision expanded, I saw us taking that fire to ignite or rekindle other fires in a landscape that was filled with darkness so that people could have light. That's the prophetic vision boiled down to a couple of sentences. And if you'd like to see the full thing that's on YouTube from last Sunday. And I had that vision on the Wednesday night before I preached and I didn't share it with a living soul. I didn't share it with my wife, I didn't share it with anybody. The first time anybody heard about the prophetic vision was last Sunday morning. What I didn't know at the time when I got up to preach was that three of our prophets received words on the Friday night just before I preached that confirmed my vision without knowing that I had had a prophetic encounter and without sharing what uh, they had seen. So Rose Shalala saw a series of lampstands in the distance in a vision and most were flickering from a lack of oil. Margaret saw that uh, more oil was needed and prophesied into that. And Sylvia saw that the lampstands were people, all of which served as confirmation of what God showed me. Oh, I forgot... Uh, an aspect of Rose's vision was that the lampstands themselves were rusty. I want to tell you that the church needs renewal and it needs revival. And out of that needs to come the transformation of our nation. And so this week I had another prophetic encounter with the Lord. And the other night God woke me with the scripture. Now, uh, I would think that most people associated with heaven... Open Heaven Church would be aware of my Mark 4.29 story. But for those of you who haven't heard it, I'll give it to you in a snapshot. In December 2015, my wife Kerry and daughter Kim were um, overseas in Malaysia. And I went up to Shoal Bay for a week just to seek the Lord and ask you for a prophetic word for the following year. And um, I was there for two or three days and I wasn't hearing anything from God and One night I went to sleep and I woke up in the middle of the night because I heard a voice as loud as thunder yelling at me saying, Mark 4, 29. And I sat up, bolt upright in bed, reached over for my Bible, opened it up, looked up Mark 4, 29, which is, when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so God was saying to me that the harvest is here and that we needed to step into the harvest. Now, uh, part of my uh, preaching today is that a prophetic word has a season. A prophetic word has to come to maturity. It's been seven years. It'll be seven years this Christmas since I received that prophetic word. And though we have stepped into the harvest in various ways in our community, we haven't seen the fullness of that word released yet. But I believe that that word has matured. And one of the reasons that I believe that we are ready for this now is because when God woke me up in the middle of the night this past week, wasn't quite as dramatic as somebody yelling at me, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard Mark 4.39. Not 29, 39. I was like, Mark 4, 39. I had no idea 
or, or expectation of what that scripture might be about. And so uh, before I go to that scripture this morning, I want to share with you what comes in between Mark 4.29 and the passage of scripture where Mark 4.39 resides. Because in between those two uh, elements is a short parable that Jesus has shared. In Mark 4, 30 to 32, it says, Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So I just want to connect the dots a little bit here. Mark 4.29 is about stepping into a ripe harvest. Immediately after, Jesus speaks this parable about seed faith. A seed must go into the ground. It must be sown. We know that Jesus said, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, mountains will end up being cast into the sea. This is the nature of the kingdom. So when we receive a prophetic word, it's like a seed that goes down into the ground. We partner with the Lord for it to come to fruition. And then right after he tells that parable of the mustard seed, which is associated with faith, he and his disciples step straight into a huge test of what he's just been speaking about. So bearing this in mind, let's look at the story around Mark 4.39. So Jesus has talked about uh, the harvest being ripe. He's talked about uh, the kingdom being like a seed. He's talking about faith. And then he gets his disciples. Immediately after this, he gets his disciples and says, we're getting on this boat and we're going over to the other side. And on the other side, there's a deliverance mission that he has. And there's a whole new era of things that he's going to be doing with his disciples. And so they get into this boat and they're headed across the Sea of Galilee. And in Mark 4.37, it says, A great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In verse 39, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. That's 39. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, but he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now, I have to confess here that I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard Mark 4, 39, in my, in my heart, in my head. It was so vivid to me and I went out. Um, into that place in our house where I'd spend my time with the Lord. I opened my Bible and I was a little bit disappointed that it was Mark 4.39 because I've preached on this passage 
I don't know how many times in the last 10 years, but at least three, I would think. And in my, uh, let's call it pride, I thought there was nothing I didn't know about this particular passage of Scripture. <laughs> so, but I want to tell you, it's a fundamental part of my testimony, which I'll come to in a minute. But I want you for a moment to just picture this scene as if you're there in the middle of it. We are all disciples of Jesus. And he's asked us to get in a boat and go across to the other side because we're going into a mission and a purpose there. And all of a sudden, up springs this howling storm. The boat is flooding. You're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. You are miles and miles from shore. You can't even see the shore. And you begin to look out over the edge of the boat as you see the water starting to flood in and you realise you can't possibly swim that far. And then so you wake up Jesus and he gets up and he commands the storm and he says, peace, be still. And the response of the waves and wind was not something that happened over 20 minutes or an hour. It was instantaneous. When he said, peace, be still, everything became still. And that's very apparent to me because of my own testimony. My own testimony about this particular scripture is that 25 years or so ago when I was lost in my world of uh, drug dealing and crime and being far away from God and all the things that I'd got involved in, when I was as far as God as far from God as a man could be, and God began to draw me back. I ended up in my parents' house confessing my sins before God because I knew that I had come to the end of myself and I knew that God was calling me and I had no other hope left in my life and I was suicidal and, and things uh, could not look any darker for me. If I could imagine a worse scenario, I couldn't really imagine one. And so there I was in my desperation confessing my sins before God because I knew that, uh, that forgiveness was at the heart of what God wanted to do in my life. And so in my desperation I was confessing every sin that I could think of and most of them my parents knew nothing about. <laughs> But <laughs> some of them they were hearing about for the first time and they were trying to keep their jaws off the floor. But the problem was that as I began to confess my sin, for every sin that I confessed, it seemed like there was a mountain more that the enemy was reminding me about. And instead of feeling better about my situation, I began to feel worse and worse and worse, even as I was sitting there confessing my sin. And I came to this point in my heart where I said, you know what, even God can't help me. And I was about to get up out of my seat and walk out of that place. And I, truly, I was hoping a truck would just come and wipe me out because I was done. And I was sitting on this couch and I began to get up and Jesus spoke to me and said, peace. Be still. I want to tell you something about relationship with God. When you have been brought up 
uh, uh, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, when your parents have gone to the trouble of raising you in the Lord and when you've heard the Bible stories and you've read the Bible for yourself, I want to tell you when God begins to speak into your life again, he brings back to your memory everything. And when he said, peace be still, I knew exactly where he was talking about. I knew he was talking about a place where he was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples who were fearful and hopeless and when he spoke peace be still the storm was completely still and my testimony is that at the moment when I got up out of my seat as I was about to get out the door and go even God doesn't want me when Jesus spoke to me and said peace be still that vortex in my heart that storm became completely still and for the first time since I was about 11 years of age I knew what it was like to have peace with God. And so I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that 2,000 years ago on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus got up in that boat and he said, peace, be still, it became still instantly. There was no waiting. There was no, oh, gradually the wind abated and it stopped. And so... As the Lord reminded me of these things, I began to re-examine the scripture. I began to look at how the story is told and what the intent of the story is and some of the underlying themes that we may have glossed over because I know I did. When it says that he arose, the disciples woke him up and he arose. In the Greek it says that he came awake fully. And I don't want to make light of it, but he was fully awakened and not fully woke. And the church needs to get away from anything that would tend us towards being fully woke. The embrace of the world of ungodly lifestyles and all these things, the direction in which the world is heading, has got nothing to do with us. We are to be fully awakened. And in many ways... Our 21 days of prayer and fasting is about being awakened to our destiny, to what God has for us. And then Mark 4 verse 40, after the wind has become completely still, after the sea has stopped churning, it says that he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And then I thought, I need to dig into that as well. How is it that you have no faith? I didn't know until a couple of days ago that there are two words used in Greek for no. (laughs) One is slightly negative. The other is an absolute expression. One says you have a lack. It's a qualified expression. In other words, you don't have enough. The other Greek word, which is ooh, I don't know if I pronounced that right. If Anna, our resident Greek scholar, was in church this morning, she would either nod or shake her head to tell me I was on the right track. But I'm pretty confident that's how you pronounce it. The other word for no in Greek is ooh. And guess, and what it means is that you have absolutely none. Absolutely none. No faith. Why is it? 
How is it that you have no faith? That's what Jesus says to his disciples. He doesn't say, you know, if you had a bit more faith, you'd be able to do this. He says to them, you have no faith. And I think about it and I think, well, this is a group of people that are overcome by dread even though they've been with Jesus for a long time. They've been with him for a couple of years by this time. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the feeding of of 5,000 people from just a few loaves and fish. They've seen lepers cleansed. They've they've seen people raised up out of sick beds. They've seen all these things, and yet Jesus turns to them off the back of this situation and says, why is it, how is it that you have no faith? And it seems to me that all the lessons that they thought they had learned went out the window when crisis hit. One of the greatest lessons of faith that we must learn is that we have to learn to live in tension with our circumstances. I look at our worship and tech team... (laughs) as they're sitting at the back of our church, because that's all that we're allowed to have in here at the moment. And I could pick out, one after the other, people here in this building right now who are living in tension with very difficult circumstances. And in some cases, they've been living in tension with those circumstances for a long time. What I see from this is that when things go wrong, when sickness or poverty or conflict or other circumstances threaten us, we must remain in faith and we must respond from our position of faith. See, I don't believe that the disciples had no faith available to them because they went out and healed the sick and cast out demons in Jesus' name. They had faith. But what happened was crisis came and they lost it all. Faith deserted them because they had not determined in their heart that their faith was going to be greater than anything that they encountered. But it's not just a decision, it's a maturing that we must come into. And can I suggest to you that the time is now, that these last, this last year and a half with the COVID pandemic and all the challenges it has presented to us has been God's training ground for us in faith because we are coming out of that season now and we are still here. We must learn to live with our unfulfilled prophecies, our unfulfilled dreams and expectations in such a way that we never deny God's ability to step in, we never deny his willingness to step in, and we never deny his promise to step in. In the tension, in the process, in the waiting God is doing something magnificent in our hearts if we will just allow him to.
that Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, perfectly at peace, because he knew he had an assignment and it hadn't yet been fulfilled. He knew he was in the centre of his Father's will and what God had spoken was going to be, was going to be. That's why he had peace. And then I contrast this with how the disciples woke him up. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And unfortunately, this is what we sometimes do. This is a group of people who have left everything of their old lives to follow him. These are people who are not devoid of courage and endurance of faith. Yet in this moment of crisis, it's as if they've forgotten all of it. And sometimes our lack of faith is reflected by the way we come to him in crisis. In effect, it's as if we almost accuse God. We say, oh, you don't care about me. Don't you care, God, that I'm going through this? Don't you care, God, that... that I'm facing this situation and that situation. Don't you care? And all our talk of the goodness of our Abba Father gets lost in the moment of crisis. Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Then he arose, fully awakened, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? There's another thing that I saw here. Verse 39, then he arose and rebuked the wind. Then he arose. He arose after the true condition of their hearts had been exposed. That's when he got up and stilled the storm. And that's so often what happens with us. The storm comes, we get reduced to... um, uh, The storm comes and it feels like the wind is stripping us away. And in fact, it's actually... Uh, God is there in the storm. He doesn't send the storm, but he uses the storm to expose us to to really who we are, our raw selves, when confronted by crisis. And so many times he allows us to go to the brink and then he says, enough, peace, be still. And our hearts come back to that place of humble dependence upon him instead of prideful dependence upon ourselves. Jesus spoke and all became instantly still. He is the God of the suddenlies, but he's also the God of the process. And you know what? I've I've experienced a lot more process than I have suddenlies. 
But when God turns up with us suddenly, he does so with a vengeance and a recompense on what the enemy has stolen. (laughs) There's been a couple of things I've been through over the last six or seven months that were just every morning, challenge, 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 challenge. And eventually, um, I remember turning to my wife, Kerry, one morning and just kind of saying, well, I think, I think, I think this situation's done. I, I won't go into it further than that. I think this situation's done. And I was kind of fully recognising in my heart that um, I had completely surrendered it because I could see no way out of the situation. And as soon as God saw that, he came in, turned around, turned it around and multiplied the blessing. And sometimes that's what he's waiting for. Sometimes he's waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves and then he goes, you know that situation that you thought was impossible because you've dwelt on it and you've meditated on it and you've listened to the lies of the enemy so much that you've moved from your position of faith, watch what I'm going to do now. And then he's the God of the suddenly that has been working in the process all along. And so he releases the suddenly, your faith suddenly is lifted up into a higher place. And then he goes, are you ready for the next challenge? (laughs) By contrast, we have a God who is the God of the suddenlies. By contrast, our enemy is the God of the sudden lies. (laughs) You ever noticed that? He's the enemy that comes hard on the heels of the prophetic word that's been released over your life to get you out of faith and into fear. I have never yet experienced a genuine prophetic word spoken over me or that God has has spoken over me where immediately the opposite began to come against what God had to say about a matter. And so he's the enemy, the the devil is the enemy that comes hard on the heels of the prophetic word to get you out of faith, get you into fear, to try and keep you from effectively partnering with God to see the rich fulfilment God has promised you will come to pass. This is the lesson of that little parable in between Mark 4, 29, the promise of the harvest and the storm. There's that principle of Uh, The kingdom is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed can't do anything of itself. It's tiny. But when it's sown into the ground and water comes, it begins to grow and it becomes this massive tree in which birds can nest. It's a picture of fruitfulness, but it has to be stewarded. It has to be looked after. It has to be shepherded. It has to be all these things. It has to be tended so that it can come to fruition. And so the disciples go out of that situation where he's tried to teach them that lesson and then he gives them the object lesson in what they go through in the lake. And when they got to the other side, I can guarantee you that it had sunk in in a way that it hadn't before. This God of the sudden lies... I saw a really um, 
interesting description about the devil in John 8:44. It's Jesus speaking about Satan. It's God of lies. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. The enemy has an assignment upon your life. He doesn't want you to get where you're going, and if he can, he will kill you along your journey. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Listen to this from the NIV. When he lies, he speaks his native language. The first tongue of Satan is deceit and lies. Whatever lies you are listening to and you embrace, they become a reality. He's tricky. He's deceitful. He twists the truth. There is no truth in anything he has to say. The native language of the devil is lies. It says, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The native language of the devil is lies. The native language of heaven is truth. Sometimes it's not clear which of the things that Jesus said and did had the most impact on his disciples. But with certain things that they went through, you can see them re-emphasized later on. You can see things that they went through alluded to later on. And this imagery of a stormy sea and God's authority over it is used later in the Bible when James speaks to us about faith. In James 1 verse 6, he admonishes us and he says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The disciples knew what it was like to be driven and tossed by the wind. They knew what it was like to be helpless in a storm. But they also knew the God who said, peace, be still to the storm, so that they could get where they were going. He goes further by saying, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a difference between being double-minded and coming to the end of yourself. A double-minded man cannot make up, the, cannot come to a permanent decision about where he stands on something. And therefore he's unstable. But somebody who is operating in faith will stand in faith, stand in faith, stand in faith, stand in faith, stand in faith until you get to the end of yourself. But see, you've been sowing. You've been sowing. You've been sowing. You've been sowing by faith. And the Bible says that the kingdom of heaven is like that mustard seed. And what you've been doing is you've been growing that mustard seed. Just because you've come to the end of yourself doesn't mean that you've run out of faith. It just means that you've sowed and you've sowed and you've sowed and it hasn't been released from heaven yet. And just when you get to the end of yourself, God says, okay, that's enough. Because I've grown him in faith and I've brought him to the end of himself. I'm going to show him my faithfulness and now his faith will be multiplied. This is a season for the church to operate in multiplied faith. 
You have sowed in faith. We have all sowed in faith, in faith, in faith, in faith, particularly in the last 18 months. I do not know one single Christian who has not been grown by what they've been through. They might have come to, to through times of helplessness and hopelessness and despair. They might have been diverted by conspiracy theories, diverted by different ideas, thrown into the mix time and time again. But you're still here. You're still standing and God is bringing us out. Those of us who are being called to fivefold ministry have a responsibility in this process. You know, I talked, uh, talked a little bit about how um, certain things that the disciples uh, went through being repeated later in the Bible and this image of the storm and being tossed to and fro by the wind um, pops up in different places in the New Testament but in that key scripture about fivefold ministry, let me, let me uh, share this with you. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's destiny over you, no matter where you are in your faith walk, no matter how long you've been in the kingdom or how short a time you spend in the kingdom, God's intent for you is to come to the, the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and it's the fivefold ministry's responsibility to bring you to that place and equip you for the work of ministry. But sometimes we forget to go on to verse 14 that says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. There are a lot of influences that we can be listening to at the moment. And some of them are throwing out doomsday scenarios in the name of the Lord. That one I mentioned right at the top of my message, this particular person who said that COVID-19 was a device released by Bill Gates to reduce the world's population by 7 billion people. Can I tell you that is a false doctrine being brought against the body of Christ? I'm not trying to say that we are living in peaceful times. We are not. But our position in the midst of a uh, time of war must be peace in the storm. So I was working on this uh, on this message last night, and I was waiting on God, and I was thinking about the prophetic nature of how I was taken to this passage of scripture. And I believe that the Lord is speaking this to us. You have stepped into the boat, trusting that I would take you to the other side. The storm has come and you're still here. This storm, I'm not talking about every storm, okay? This is what I heard the Lord say. This storm is now abating and you are safe. 
The wind and waves of uncertainty and lies of the enemy have been stilled. I have not changed my mind about your purpose and destiny. Now it's time for you to come aside. I will renew your mind and with it my vision for your future. It will be clear to you as never before. You have tasted of my goodness and I have not failed you, nor have I forsaken you. Peace be still. And then I heard him say, know that I am God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do you know how God is exalted among the nations? He's exalted through you and I. He's exalted through what he does in our lives and how our testimony affects those about us. I believe that the prophetic uh, encounter that I had with God nearly seven years ago is now coming to maturity. That there is harvest and revival on the other side of where we have been for the last 18 months or so. And that God is going to give us fresh strategy. He's going to give us fresh purpose for every individual who is part of our 21 days of fasting. I believe as you come aside, God is going to fine-tune you. You're like a blunt pencil and God's putting you in the sharpener. And in fact, you've been in the sharpener for a while, but now he's making it a very, very fine point. I'm going to ask Irene to bring the worship team back up. I feel the Lord saying further to some of us this morning that truth is never lived in denial. God is not asking you to be in denial of your circumstances. I know that there are people joining us on this live stream and you are walking through the middle of some difficulty. God is not asking you to walk in denial of what you're currently caught in. God is asking you to begin declaring by faith his greater truth over your situation. And that by sowing that seed of declaration, of prophecy, of prayer, of supplication, of fasting, of humility before the Lord, as you sow those seeds, you have to understand that God is operating in the background. He's operating on your problem. God cares about the situation that you are in. He also cares even more, I believe, about the condition of your heart while you walk through what you're walking through. God is bringing us out of this terrible season of the last 18 months that have been so challenging. He's bringing us out to rich fulfillment. 
I'm not trying to say that we're coming into a season of peace and plenty. We know that the war that there is a spiritual war going on all the time. It is intensifying all the time. But God wants us to be in a position of peace in the midst of what we see around us because God has already made a way for us to reach where he wants us to go and nothing can stop him. So, Lord, in closing today, I want to make this declaration over everyone who's part of our service this morning. And it's a very simple declaration. It's three words. They're the three most important words I ever heard in my life. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. I would declare over you and over your circumstances that no matter what situation you find yourself in in this moment, the peace of God is blossoming out of the depths of your spirit, man, and releasing peace for you to walk through in victory into what God has for you. I hope you can receive that this morning because I believe God's heart is on it. I thank you, Father, for what you've done this morning. I thank you, Father God, that by preaching your word, Father God, something has shifted in the atmosphere of all our hearts, that, Father God, that we come out of this with a renewed sense of purpose and destiny, that what you are releasing is unstoppable. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.